Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John 20. People can change. And we love stories of change, don't we? Every superhero movie begins with who they were and who they became, and all along the way it documents how they changed. And people can change for better or for worse. And we love stories of change because they ring true to the human experience. Life is not one-dimensional. It's not flat or static. Our lives are deep and multifaceted. The Bible records the lives of real, historical, and complex people. For example, disciple Peter. Is this all right? I'm doing okay? Okay. Take, for example, Jesus' disciple Peter, who, when a servant girl questioned Peter and asked, do you, weren't you with Jesus, he refused any connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. But only a short time later, when Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, the ruling authorities, and he's commanded, stop speaking about Jesus, what does he say? What does he do? He refuses, no matter what it would cost him. Peter changed. What changed him? In John chapter 20, we are going to see a lot of change. We're going to see the tomb go from full to empty. We're going to see John go from baffled to believing. We are going to see Mary go from weeping to rejoicing. But all of these changes are like little aftershocks to the greatest earth-shaking change in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The passage for this morning, John 20, 1 through 18, it comes to us in two scenes. The first scene, 1 through 10, the second scene, 11 through 18. And so we're going to read, read each scene, look at it, talk about it, then read the next scene, look at it, talk about it. But before we begin by looking at scene 1, I want to tell you what I think the main point of this passage is. What is the main point of John 20, 1 through 18? I think it's this. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, securing your salvation. So tell everyone. We're going to see that in four points. Jesus has risen from the grave. He calls you by name. He calls you his family. And then he sends you out as his witness. Let's begin by looking at scene one, John 20, 1 through 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The scene begins in the dark before the dawn. It's Sunday, the first day of the week. A woman named Mary Magdalene is walking towards the tomb. From Luke chapter 8, we learn a little bit about this woman named Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is one of the women from the group of women who traveled with Jesus as he went from city to city proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And Luke adds a short description in chapter 8 regarding Mary Magdalene. He says this about her. From her, Jesus had cast out seven demons. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And we see Mary's great love for her Savior in her actions. While Jesus' disciples abandoned him, Mary followed Jesus all the way up to the cross of Christ where Mary stood next to Jesus' mother and his mother's sister. And she watched Jesus crucify, be crucified and die. Mary witnessed Jesus deliver her from seven dark spirits. Mary also witnessed Jesus be delivered up to a brutal death. Whips for his back, thorns for his head, spikes through his arms and legs, a spear through his side, the weight of his body bearing down, tearing through his flesh as it hangs on the cross. Crucifixion would have been horrific to endure. It must have been unbearable to watch. Mary probably would have wanted to scream and vomit and weep. And now Mary, one of the last ones at his cross, is one of the first at his tomb. Mary, who in the past experienced great darkness, goes now to the tomb in darkness, to mourn the one who had delivered her from her darkness. And as Mary arrives at the tomb, it's like her grief now mixes with confusion, maybe even anger or panic as she sees the stone rolled away. It's almost like the the stone not being there is a deeper twisting of the knife into Mary's grief. Now, this isn't an unusual response, right? If you saw a grave dug up, you'd be concerned, right? Something isn't right. So Mary draws some conclusions in her head and races back to tell Peter and John. John here in this passage is identified in, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. She announces to them that people have stolen his body, have taken away his body from the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. After hearing this news, Peter and John start booking it for the tomb. Now, in first century culture, you don't see grown men run. This is rare. 
These men had walked with Jesus all through his earthly ministry, but this news has accelerated their pace. They run to the empty tomb to investigate, and John runs just a little bit faster than Peter. He wants you to know that. John makes it to the tomb first. He looks in. He sees the linen cloth, but then he stops. He doesn't go in. Why doesn't he go in? Well, we don't really know why. John was the only disciple to have seen the crucifixion of Jesus, so maybe he didn't want to look again at the broken body of his Lord and friend. Maybe he didn't want to become ceremonially unclean by touching a corpse. For whatever reason, he doesn't go in. But Peter comes up from behind, out of breath and true to character, no waiting, no hesitation, no beating around the bush, in he goes. And he looks around and he observes the evidence. Now, it's important here to know a little bit about the burial practices of the Jews during those days. They were quite distinct. They would wrap the corpse with several layers of linen cloths, and these cloths would be smeared and smothered with spices and ointments and aloes. Therefore, what they would do is when they wrap it and smear it, the cloths would create something like a cocoon, a hardening. And this is important because if you want access to the corpse, you're going to have to rip the cloth. You're going to have to tear the cloth to get access to the corpse. So Peter and John go in, and what do they see? Grave clothes. Grave clothes. These are significant. Here's why. The grave clothes rule out any belief in a grave robbery. For a grave robber to have done this, what would they have needed to do? Well, first, they would have had to uh, beaten off the, the guard stationed at the tomb. They would have had to remove this massive boulder sealing the tomb. Now, if they did do this, what was their intention? What is a grave robber in it for? Well, they're in it for the money. And what is the only thing of value in the tomb? The linen cloths and the spices. But both of these are left behind. Now, if for some reason they did desire to steal the body, how would they have done that? How would they have stolen the body? They would have grabbed the body, linens and all, and hightailed it out of there. They would not have taken the time to remove the linens from the body. That would have delayed their escape. That would increase their chance of discovery. And if they were discovered, Grave robbery was a serious offense. The Emperor Claudius instituted the death penalty for grave robbers. Now, if for some strange reason they wanted to steal the body without taking the linens, without taking the linens, how would you expect the linens to be left in the tomb? They would have been ripped open and left in disarray, scattered all through the tomb. But what do we see here? As one commentator says, there are no traces of haste. The deserted tomb bore the marks of perfect calm. The whole point of the descriptions is that the grave clothes did not look as if they had been put off or taken off. They were lying there in their regular folds as if the body of Jesus had simply passed through them. 
Did you notice what it says in verse 7? Look down at verse 7. The face cloth was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a place by itself. It's like Jesus tidied up before departing. And we're meant to draw a contrast here between Lazarus in John 11 and Jesus in John 20. Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. Lazarus would die again. Jesus would live forever. Lazarus came out wearing his grave clothes, and Jesus had to declare, unbind him and let him go. But there's no trace of that here. Where we live in Central Asia, there are seasons. Now, we're Floridians, and so we just learned this recently about seasons. Now, you people who, Ohioans, what are those? Ohioans, is that how you say it? You have seasons. So, you probably devote some time, one day every year maybe, to take out all of your winter clothes, your winter jackets and your boots. You fold them up and you put them away. Why? Because you don't need them any longer. That's what we're meant to see here. Jesus folding up his grave clothes is like Jesus folding up his grave. He won't be needing that any longer because he's not going back. Winter is gone. Summer is here. Death is over. Eternal life has dawned. The empty tomb, the grave clothes, all of this is saying that something absolutely significant took place. And we can imagine Peter's mind racing. Okay, the the boulder's gone, the guard's gone, the grave clothes are left like this. Why would a grave robber have done this? Why would he have done it in this way? Now, in a parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that Peter left that day and went home marveling and wondering what had happened. He departed from that tomb, still trying to piece things together in his mind. But John's response was different. While John didn't have it all figured out, his response was different. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. John saw the empty tomb, the missing body, the grave clothes, and he believed. What did he believe? What did John believe? Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John didn't understand that day in the tomb that the scriptures bore witness to the resurrection of the Christ. But what John did, he did come to understand that later, but what bore witness to John that day in the tomb was what he saw and what he didn't see. John was the first person in all the world to believe that Jesus was alive. And I want to stop here and I want to draw your attention to a small but significant word in verse 9. Look again at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He must. Jesus had to rise from the dead. What is the most important day of the year for you? Maybe it's your birthday. Maybe it's Christmas. Let me go a little further. What's the most important day of the year, the century, the millennium? What is the most important day in the history of the world? 
the focal point of all of history is what took place on that Sunday morning. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no Christmas. Without the resurrection, we're still in our sin, still in darkness, still lost, still hopeless. Without the resurrection, all of Jesus' promises would be empty, untrue. Why is it, Christian, why is it that you can know for sure that your sin was atoned for, that divine justice was satisfied, that your debt was paid? Because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. The crucifixion, the death of Christ on the cross is the payment, the resurrection, the receipt. Everything is done. It's over. Why does this matter for you? Why does this matter for us as Christians? It matters today because you don't worship a rotting corpse. You worship a living Christ, a living Savior. And a living Christ will never leave you or forsake you. A living Christ truly can be with you always, even until the end of the age. A living Christ is an all-powerful, ever-present, life-giving Christ who ever lives to love you and care for you. Christian, if Jesus lived for you, if he died for you, if he rose for you, if he did the greater, will he not also do the lesser by taking care of you? If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can bring a charge against you? Who can condemn you? Who can separate you from the love of Christ? God is the one who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for you, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Point one, Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Point two, Jesus Christ calls you by name. Let's look at uh, scene two, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, Jesus said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
The narrative continues, and we find Mary back at the tomb, standing outside, weeping. And we see Mary's love for Jesus in her grief. And Mary thinks she's alone in her anguish. But actually, just ahead of her are angels, and just behind her is the Lord Jesus himself. And she looks into the tomb, and she sees the two angels. And the angels, confronted with Mary's grief, asks a question to lead Mary out of her despair and into healing. Why are you weeping? And something happens that causes Mary to turn around. Maybe she hears something. Maybe the angel's attention goes uh, behind uh, Mary. Maybe the angels give Mary a little nod and say, hey, look over there. Who's that? Whatever it is, she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't really see Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. Maybe because her eyes are still filled filled with tears. Maybe because it's still dark. Maybe because the resurrected body of Jesus looks a little bit different. But most probably, the reason why she doesn't recognize, recognize Jesus is because in her head, there is no concept of the reality of a resurrection. Maybe for Mary's mind, her mind can't comprehend what her eyes see. She thinks he is the gardener. She thinks he's a gardener. Do you remember where Jesus was buried? John 19, 41 says this, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. They laid Jesus in a garden tomb. I don't think that's a mere coincidence that Jesus was laid in a garden tomb. Mary's mistaking Jesus for a gardener is on one level totally wrong, but on another another level, absolutely correct. Here's why. Gardens have particular significance in the Bible. The Bible begins with man being kicked out of a garden. It climaxes with Jesus' death and resurrection for man, securing salvation for man in a garden, and it ends with man enjoying perfect fellowship with God in a new and better Eden, a new and better garden, a paradise, heaven. In the beginning, God placed Adam in a garden. Adam was a gardener. He was to work and keep the garden. He was to garden the whole earth for the glory of God. But he failed in his work in the garden. Instead of cultivating the dust of the earth, he became part of it. And while Adam failed in the garden, Jesus was faithful in the garden. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, said to God, not your will, but mine. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, said to God, not my will, but yours. Adam, in the Garden, brought death to all. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, in a Garden, brought life. Because of Adam, people were removed from the Garden. Because of Jesus, people are ushered back into a better, perfect garden, fully and finally and forever. Jesus is a new and better Adam. He's a new and better gardener. 
in the work that this garden performed in his life, death, and resurrection would bear fruit all over the world in Central Asia and in Cincinnati. So Mary turns and sees this gardener, and Jesus comes to her full of love and gentle questioning. He draws Mary out. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And Mary responds, Sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where, and I'll go to him. And Jesus responds with one word, Mary. At this point, all the clues, the empty tomb, the grave clothes, the angels, Jesus standing before her, all of these could not pierce Mary's darkness. But while Mary's eyes failed her, her ears didn't. She heard the voice of her shepherd, recognized him, and came. As one commentator says, it's like Jesus can preach a perfect sermon in one word. This is not a general call. This is a specific call. Mary. Specifics matter. Names matter. There is a difference between me saying, I love children, and me saying, holding my daughter's face in my hands, I love you, Mabel. I love you, Betsy. God knows the name of every star in the sky, and he knows the name of every one of his sheep, and he calls them. Christian, God loves you and calls your name specifically. He calls your name. Do you know, do you know this love? I was struck the other day reading Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. One of his prayers, his prayers for the congregation in Ephesus is this. I pray that they might have power or strength to grasp, to grasp what? How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Strength to understand how much God loves you. That is amazing. Maybe because of your sin, or your past, or your suffering, or your circumstances, Christian, you are forgetting God's love for you. Let this passage be a reminder that God loves you and calls you by name. He is your good shepherd. Trust him. Follow him. At Jesus' word, Mary sees Jesus truly, and she cries out, Rabbi, and it's at this point, it's almost like she drops to her knees and grabs Jesus. She has found him. And Jesus turns and looks at Mary full of love, full of love, and says, Hey, listen, Mary, now's not the time for doing this. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to my Father. I haven't departed. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to disappear. You're not going to lose me again. This isn't a time to cling to me. This is a time for joy. It's a time to tell others good news. And what does that good news entail? Point three, Jesus Christ 
calls you his family. Jesus gives Mary a task. Listen, Mary, you need to go and proclaim a new message. It's not like the message you proclaimed earlier in panic and confusion. This is a message of joy. This is good news. I'm ascending, Jesus says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This doesn't mean at this precise, precise moment Jesus is ascending to the Father. It means the process for his return to the Father has been completed. Everything has been completed, and he's in process of returning to his Father. But notice the phrase in Jesus' message to them, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is not a message of hostility toward those who had abandoned him. This is not a message of denial toward the one who denied him three times. This is a message of good news. Jesus is saying a profound relationship adjustment has taken place. So far in the Gospel of John, up to this point, Jesus has referred to his Father like this. The Father, the Father who sent me. My Father. He's referred to the disciples like this. Disciples, servants, friends. But something is different now. A new relationship has sprung to life. He addresses them differently. My wife Mandy has two brothers and two sisters. And a few years ago, we gained uh, that second brother through adoption. We all went to the courthouse and we celebrated. Jaden was now part of the family. But what was most moving, most significant, is when we heard Jaden address Manny's parents like this Hey, Dad, do you want to play basketball? Hey, Mom, what time are you going to pick me up after school today? Dad, Mom, no longer are the days where Jaden addresses Mary's, Mandy's parents as Mr. and Mrs. Motzka. Those days are over. Mandy's mother is Jaden's mother. Jaden's dad is Mandy's dad. A profound relationship adjustment has taken place, and that's what we're meant to see here. Jesus is telling us God is our God, the Father is our Father, Jesus is our brother. We belong to the family of God, and Jesus is not ashamed of you. As one commentator says, these st statements are meant to grab us by the gut, to tell us, to show us that we are accepted, that we are family. Now listen, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word family. I don't know the ins and outs of your relationship with your father. Maybe thinking about your father is a, not a comfort to you. It's a hard thing. But when you're adopted into this family, when you are part of the family of God by faith, the one who created you and knows you better than you know yourself and who loves you more than you could ever dream becomes your father. When God brings you into his family, you gain God as your father, Christ as your brother, and all these fine folk sitting around you as siblings. So Christian, take time to know your father and take time to know your siblings, your fellow church members, to love and care for them because you're going to be with them forever. 
This is amazing news. God saves us. He brings us into his family. We should tell the whole world. Point four, Jesus Christ sends you out as his witness. Jesus gives Mary the task to go and tell. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to her. This task This commission echoes the Great Commission in Matthew 28. While Mary was to go and tell the brothers, we are to go and tell our neighbors and the nations. The resurrection has universal implications. The resurrection is the declaration that salvation has been accomplished. Salvation is open for any person who repents and believes. Who can herald, who can herald this message? You can. Your sin, your past does not disqualify you from proclaiming this news. Mary had seven demons, and yet She was the first witness of the resurrected Christ. She was the first one commissioned to bring the message of Jesus' resurrection. Your past does not disqualify you. You are not excluded. I want to pause here. I want to ask, what type of literature, what are we reading here? What is this? What is John 21 through 18? This is an eyewitness account. Who records details like this unless it really happened? We both took off together. I got there first, but Peter, being Peter, entered before me. Who paints themselves in such a poor light? Mary's grieving. Peter can't put all the pieces back together. John didn't understand the scriptures bore witness to the resurrection of the Christ. And later in John 20, all the disciples are hiding in fear. We see Thomas make the the demand, unless I touch Jesus' body, I'm not going to believe. Even though Jesus, through his earthly ministry, said over and over again, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. You don't write this unless it happened. And another amazing feature about this is the way God honors women in this account. In first century AD, in these contexts, the testimony of a woman was devalued. The woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. So if you wanted to write a fake story with the intent to deceive others, you wouldn't dream of giving the star part to a woman. And yet, in God's providence... As the surrounding culture devalues and belittles women, God honors Mary and gives her the unique privilege of being the first to pass on the best news in all the world. Jesus is alive. Listen, this is not some symbolic tale. This is not a fairy tale. This is the type of reporting you'd expect from something that actually took place. And John is saying that it did. It took place in time and space. These things are true. I'm a witness and I'm writing these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everyone missed the resurrection of Christ at first. John does not want you to miss it. 
listen, Christianity is not a shot in the dark. It isn't blind faith. There are reasons why we believe. There is compelling evidence. Don't miss it. Believe. This morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, he invites you to come to him. He invites you to take his hand by faith and be saved. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So turn from your sin and run to Christ and be saved. I started this sermon by saying that people can change. What brought about the greatest change in the lives of Jesus' disciples? The crucifixion for the disciples of Christ was a dark despairing day. All seemed lost. They were utterly defeated, hiding in shame and fear. They were in ashes. But the resurrection for the disciples was like a phoenix bursting forth brighter than ever before out of the ashes. The resurrection of Christ lit up the disciples. It transformed their lives. They were willing to take the gospel anywhere and everywhere. Fearless, bold, different. Nothing can account for the change in the disciples' lives other than the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, when Peter and John are charged not to speak of this name and are threatened, this is how they respond. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We have to proclaim this news. We can't not talk about it. Do you do whatever you want? Well, we're not going to stop talking about it. And they didn't. They faced scorn and torture and death, but they didn't stop talking about it. And this morning, 2,000 years later, we're still celebrating what they proclaimed. They didn't stop talking about it, and neither should we. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again to accomplish our salvation. Everyone should know. So let's tell them. Let's pray.